Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. If you remember, we are doing a summer series entitled A Mission-Focused Church this summer. And we are seeking to really recalibrate and refocus our attention on that which matters most for us as individuals, as families, as a church. And my desire is that you and I would really approach this summer series in a healthy, introspective kind of way, where we evaluate individually before the Lord where we are at with regards to the mission that God has called us to fulfill here in this world. We are here to accomplish a mission We're going to be talking this summer about even the purpose for why we are here. We're going to go to Acts chapter 1, and then we're going to talk about the right practice, what a culture of discipleship looks like in the context of the local church. But I told you that we started this series talking about the right perspective that we need to have before we talk about our purpose, the lenses through which we need to see life. And last week, we began looking at the right perspective with regards to our view of God. How should we view God? In the light of His majesty, in the light of His glory. And so we're going to continue that series today by looking at the right perspective with regards to ourselves. If I were to ask you, what quality or qualities would you say characterize mature Christians, what would you say? In other words, what comprises Christian maturity? What would you answer? I once did a simple, informal survey on this, and generally this is how people answered. Some of these were the answers. Mature Christians are very knowledgeable people. In essence, mature Christians are people who know a lot. They've been around the block, they're theologians, they've learned a lot of doctrine. Or mature Christians are very experienced people. People who have a lot of street smart Essentially, they are savvy people and witty people with regards to how to navigate and live in a world that is hostile to Christianity. That is Christian maturity. Or mature Christians are very skilled people or very gifted people. Mature Christians are very capable people, very competent people. They know how to get things done. They're the movers and shakers in a church. That's Christian maturity. Those were, in essence, some of the answers that I got. There were other answers, but these were generally the most common ones. And I suppose that to one extent or another, some of these, or a combination of these, may be true to some extent or another. But how often, brethren, do you hear it emphasized over the years that mature Christians, even faithful leaders, are humble men and humble women? We don't hear that very often. At least in the 30 years I've been walking with the Lord. Generally speaking, we don't tend to emphasize humility when we talk about Christian maturity or what it means to be a person who is Christ-like. And yet, when you read the Bible, it seems to really emphasize three primary Christian virtues which characterize Christian maturity above anything else. There are others, but they are holiness, love, and humility. Holiness, love, and humility. And you can make a case that pretty much any other important Christian virtue springs off of one or more of these big three, especially humility. Humility is very important, crucial in the Christian life. And last week we considered that the mission-focused Christian, the mission-focused church, must cultivate the right perspective about God 
And that means that we must daily contemplate the majesty of, of God, that we must have an accurate view of God. If you're taking notes, that was your, the first point last week. Daily contemplate the majesty of God. But now, flowing from a right perspective about God, we must also have a right perspective about ourselves. We must see ourselves accurately. If you and I are going to be faithful and fruitful in fulfilling our mission. No matter how bad things get, brethren, we must never succumb to a proud, arrogant culture where Christian humility seems to be a vice rather than a virtue in our culture. Instead, we need to be people who make it a practice to speak the truth in love, yes, but to do it with a sense of humility and out of a genuine heart of compassion for people who need Christ. Amen? That should be the kind of attitude that we should cultivate and foster in our hearts. Because if it weren't for the grace of God, you and I wouldn't be here today. If it wasn't for God's mercy and loving kindness and His steadfast, loyal, covenant-keeping love and grace, you and I wouldn't be here. I think sometimes we forget about that. And may I remind us that far from weakness or cowardice, Humble Christians are bold and courageous types of individuals. The most bold and courageous type of people that I know in the right kind of boldness and the right kind of courage, mentors of mine for many years are the most humble men that you will ever meet. And they're bold and courageous. And women that you will never ever meet. Why? Why are they bold and courageous? Because we understand that it's not about us. It's not about us. It's about God and His truth. Thus, we speak up, but we do it in the right manner, right? As Christians, we understand that it's not just what we say, but it's also why we say it, when we say it, and how we say it. And the how should be in humility. In humility. Thus, we need to grow in this cardinal virtue. And so as you're taking notes on your outline, write it down this way, okay? The mission-focused Christian diligently cultivates a heart of humility. If you and I want to be effective and fruitful and faithful in our mission here in this world, you and I must diligently cultivate a heart of humility. And we learn this from our passage here, that a heart characterized by humility is the right response to God's majesty and to His greatness. In other words, the more that we behold the beauty and the wonder and the glory and the majesty of God, the more we understand our place and we are brought very low and thus we're ready to be used by God. Amen? Because we have come to a point of recognizing where we're at. Look at verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is there a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. And then we're going to zero in here in the middle of verse 2 today. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. I want us to really dissect this latter half of verse 2 this week and next week together. And I want you to notice that God specifies here three ways that humility shows itself in our lives. Three characteristics, three ways that humility really shows itself in our Christian walk. And so this becomes sort of a litmus test for you and I, that you and I may discern by the grace of God if we are walking and growing in humility or not. 
And I've worded these three ways as questions for your help, okay? So first, question number one, let me ask you this. Do you have a proper view of yourself? Do you see yourself rightly? Do you have a proper view of yourself? This is an important question, isn't it? The text says in the middle of verse 2, to this one I will look to him who is humble. To him who is humble. This is so important. Why? Because secular ideologies, brethren, and secular psychology in our culture tells us that a big part of our fundamental problem is that we think too low of ourselves. That we don't love ourselves enough. That we need to cherish the self, the mighty self, even more. But Scripture speaks contrary to that. The opposite is true. I mean, just consider for a moment this morning. No one had to tell you this morning to wake up and to take a warm shower. Unless you like cold showers, and I definitely don't, okay? You took a warm shower, you pampered yourself a little bit, you fixed yourself up from the mess that you were, right? Especially us men. You took care of yourself. You ate something you like or that is healthy for you. You didn't eat unhealthy things. You put something on that is comfortable. You sat today where you like to sit, and nobody sat in the front row, so we felt pretty lonely. The Hernandezes, hint, hint, maybe that'll change next Sunday. You sat comfortably, right? What's my point? We naturally, brethren, do what is best for the self, which is an expression of the way that you love yourself, you value yourself. We don't naturally, in and of ourselves, set ourselves aside and humbly think about others and do characteristically, by choice, what benefits other people. And so you see, contrary to what the world says, our problem is that we love ourselves too much. We don't love God enough or others enough, beginning with those in our home and extending out onto the church and even those who are non-believing in the world. We don't love people enough. We have a love problem is what we have toward God and toward others. We think too highly of ourselves. But God calls us to cultivate a proper view of ourselves. And this is what our text addresses. What kind of a person gets God's attention? Look at the middle of verse 2. But to this one I will look to him who is what, brethren? What? Humble, right? Are we looking at the same Bibles together? Yes? Humble? The Hebrew word for humble there literally refers to a mindset where we recognize our spiritual poverty. To a mindset where we recognize our spiritual neediness, if I could put it that way. That begins at conversion. But you know what? That is a, a kind of attitude of neediness, of our sense of need for the Lord, that we should cultivate in our ongoing sanctification, in our ongoing process of becoming more and more like Jesus. Humility refers to lowliness of thinking, where we recognize how we measure up, not in comparison to others, to the next sinner saved by grace, but in how we measure up to God. And then we are brought very low to think rightly of ourselves. Humility is the attitude the Apostle John had, the Apostle whom Jesus loved in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 17. It had been some 60 years since the Apostle John had seen Jesus, right, ascend to, to heaven and be enclosed and wrapped in, uh, into the clouds. And upon seeing Jesus in Revelation 1.17, what did the Apostle John do? Did he run up to Jesus and say, hey, high five, dude? What did he do? It says that he fell at his feet like a dead man. 
Humility. Humility. Proper assessment of self in the light of the glory and the majesty of Christ, you see. And so Scripture calls us to cultivate this kind of proper view of ourselves in the light of the greatness of God. In fact, look with me in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. Romans 12. Go there with me. Romans 12 and verse 3. Paul exhorts these believers to not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of their minds so that they may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And then look at verse 3 of Romans 12. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, believer, Christian, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. You see that? That's in the context, the following context of addressing spiritual gifting. And Paul says, make sure that you have a right assessment of yourself. Be sound in the way that you think about yourself. Why do you think he calls them to that? Because if you have a wrong assessment of yourself, then you will be a proud person who will not use your spiritual gifting for the glory of God and for the good of your brethren. Isn't it true that the the proud person is always thinking about what is best for them? It doesn't matter what's best for the collective whole. The proud person is always holding tightly to those things that we ought to hold loosely in our hands, including ministry and wherever you serve. Proud people aren't thinking about what's collectively good for the whole. Proud people are thinking about how they might hold on with a kung fu grip to the things that they've always felt that they're entitled to in the church. So it shows itself even in the way that we minister. It shows itself in the way that we serve. Thus, Paul says, make sure that you do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Think so as to have sound judgment. The idea there is think so as to have a proper assessment or evaluation of yourself. And in the following context, you will use your gifts for the glory of God and the good of others, right? That's the idea. Now let me clarify something. When we say that we must think rightly about ourselves... We're not talking here about a proud, proud, false sense of humility, right? Andrew Murray, the 19th century South African pastor and missionary, wrote this, quote, Humility does not refer merely to thinking less of oneself, but of thinking of oneself less. You see the distinction? Humility does not refer to merely thinking less of oneself, but of thinking of oneself less, end quote. What's he saying? That it's not a poor me, woe, 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 woe is me. I'm not worthy. I can't do anything at all. You know what? You're right. You can't. But in Christ, right, relying upon the power of God, you're going to be able to do whatever God has called you to do because He empowers you by His Spirit to be able to do that work. Amen? So you can't do it in and of yourself. You're right. Preach it. Yes. But rely upon the Lord. Don't let that paralyze you. Because it's not in your strength and in your power that you do anything. So it's not this poor me, woe is me, I'm not worthy kind of an attitude. Rather, it's an attitude that considers others as more important than oneself. It's an attitude of mindfulness and preoccupation with the needs of of others. It's a selfless, giving approach to life, brethren. Beginning with our marriages and our parenting, kids or young people with your parents, out onto the church, meeting needs in the church, even meeting the needs of people in the world to be salt and light so that we might have a platform to be able to share Christ and why there's a difference in us? This is a very missional perspective, isn't it? See how humility drives all of this? 
This is why humble Christians are the most servant-minded people. Humble Christians are not concerned. They don't live in this world of, I need credit for what I'm doing. Um, They're always fixated upon being recognized. No. They just want to serve. They're machine servants, right? They're like a machine, always meeting needs. Because it's less about themselves and preoccupation, preoccupation with themselves and more about the needs of others. Humble Christians are always willing to jump in and say, you know what, I'm going to meet that need. I'm not going to wait for the next person to do that. I'm going to meet that need. And I'm going to help others, encourage others by example and in word to make sure that they jump in and make sure that they serve and meet needs. That's characteristic of a humble Christian. And so note, what gets God's attention here? What does God delight in? He looks with favor upon a heart of humility. He looks with favor upon the person who has a proper view of themselves. And from the context, again, right from verse 1, it's in light of the majesty of God that you view yourself rightly. That's where it begins. Beholding the glory of Christ. God loves believers who are cultivating humility in their life. Conversely, James chapter 4, verse 6, write that text down. James 4, 6 says that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He's opposed to the proud. The idea there is that God stands opposed or in battle array against those who are proud of heart. On the other hand, He lavishes grace upon the person who has a proper, humble view of him or herself. Now, brethren, let me ask you, how might we cultivate this type of humility further? Well, this cardinal virtue was most supremely exemplified, wasn't it? In the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. Indeed, if you and I are going to be humble people, we need to behold Christ. Amen? Study the life of Jesus. Study His Word. We are most Christ-like when we emulate His humility, His humble selflessness. Go with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Classic text. There were a couple of women duking it out at the church at Philippi. Later on, he names them in chapter 4 of Philippians, Yodi and Syntyche. And Paul is trying to get these people to understand that they need to walk in unity, walk cohesively in one direction together. And how does he do it? He calls them to practice and to flesh out the the humble selflessness of Christ. This is the famous kenosis passage, the self-emptying of Christ passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through following. But the whole point why Paul even goes there to point to Jesus is to say, hey, people, you need to consider others as more important than yourself. If you're going to walk in humility, here, let me show you the ultimate supreme example of humility, and his name is what? Jesus Christ. Look at Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this attitude, believers at Philippi, in yourselves, this attitude of humble selflessness, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What did he do? But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Again, Paul is calling Christians to walk in humility. If they are to walk in unity, if they're moving one direction together, they must be others-oriented. And here he says, you want to see the supreme example of humble selflessness? Look at Jesus. How low did he go? How low did he condescend? Well, he left his infinite riches up in heaven as the eternal Son of God, right? 
came down and added a human nature to his deity. Don't ever think of the kenosis, the self-emptying of Christ, his incarnation as Jesus stripping himself of his deity. He added humanity, human nature to his deity, right? And at different times in the power of the Spirit, he could manifest that kind of power. Like in, um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he just spoke and they all fell down. Remember that? That's power right there. He added a human nature to his divine nature. He says, look at Christ. He left heaven to come to our dump, our fallen, broken world. And he didn't come as a king at his first advent, did he? He came as a suffering servant in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53. He came as a servant, not with great pomp and parading himself. In fact, it was so anticlimactic, wasn't it, at the triumphal entry? It was the exact opposite, the humility of Jesus. Why, brethren? He did this so that we might have hope. He humbled himself. Look at the text. By becoming obedient to the point of death, he even subjected himself to human sinners. Though he was blameless, he was treated as a criminal. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on the cross. I mean, how low can you go, right? The cross, the ultimate condescension. The cross, the, the emblem of suffering and shame. The cross, the most shameful and humiliating form of death reserved for criminals. Jesus chose this. Do you understand? He wasn't forced or coerced into this, brethren. Behold the humility of your Savior so that that dictates and shapes and convicts your heart and my heart about the way that we ought to operate. In our families, in our marriages, Again, in our parenting, in the church as we relate to one another. We need to have a proper assessment of ourselves, a humble view of self. And that comes from beholding the glory of Christ. He's the great example of humility. Paul beautifully says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. It's our precious Savior right there, brethren. Our precious Savior. Listen, if you're struggling with pride, and all of us do to some extent or another, consider our Savior. Consider the one who had all resources at His disposal, yet He chose to condescend by coming into the world, wrapping Himself in a human nature, dying to pay for our sins, that you and I might have hope. That's why we're here this morning. That's why we're here, because of what Christ did, because of His humility. Mark 10.45 says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Christ's humility was displayed in the fact that He came to serve us. He came to lay down His life for us. And so as you think about Christ, I wonder, I wonder how many of us have a proper view of ourselves And it shows itself in the way that we jump in to serve and meet the needs of others in the present as our Savior did. Brethren, if our Savior set the example of humble service and self-sacrifice, how much more should we respond being willing to serve and sacrifice for others? In light of the fact that Christ did this for us. And so when we see God, verses 1 through 2a, rightly, We will then learn to see ourselves rightly. Amen? Middle of verse 2. It's kind of like going to the Grand Canyon, right? 
I mean, you don't go to the Grand Canyon or see something like Niagara Falls or, you know what, Mount Rainier, like we did yesterday as we were unpacking at our Maple Valley house. People are parking their cars up in the hill where we're living, and little did we know that we were going to get this, by the way, brethren. But they're parking their cars, looking at Mount Rainier and taking pictures of it because it was so clear. It was a majestic. It really was. It was amazing. You don't walk away from a thing like that feeling better about yourself, Right? Right? I mean, you don't go to the Grand Canyon or Mount Rainier and say, I'm so great. Oh, no. You walk away thinking, boy, that's, my, that's awesome. We are so small and minuscule in the light of things like that. How much more the majestic God of Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2a, right? How much more? We walk away with a sense of our smallness. And our minusculeness, if that's even a word, in comparison to how much greater God is and majestic God is than us, brethren. That's how to cultivate a heart of humility, a lowliness of mind. We need to view ourselves in the light of God's glory. This leads us to our second question. Not only do you have a, do you have a proper view of yourself, but second question, let me ask you this. Are you humbly contrite over your sin? Are you humbly contrite or broken over your sin? If the first question had to do with your relationship to yourself and how you evaluate yourself in the light of God's majesty, this second question really has to do with what is your relationship presently to your sin? Are you broken and contrite over your sin? You know, oftentimes, and rightly so, when we think about our salvation It's true that we emphasize that vertical reconciliation part, right? That when you were saved, God saved you, your relationship to God changes. You went from enemy of God to now child of God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But now everything flows from that vertical relationship. Not only did your relationship to God change, but it's also true that there are other relationships, brethren, that as a believer also changed in your life. What do you mean, Pastor Kempis? Well, for example, your relationship to others has changed now. You no longer look to use others for your self-pleasure, to exploit other people, to not serve other people. You now love other people. You want to do others good for the glory of God. Your relationship to others has changed. Read the gospel of, or, or the, the book of 1 John, which speaks about how do you say you love God and yet you hate your brother and sister, Right? There are implications for that vertical relationship with God through Jesus being reconciled. Now our relationship to others has changed. Also, your relationship to the world changes. No longer, if you're a believer, do you love the world? Do you adopt the thinking, the ideological, philosophical fortresses of the world? No longer do you give yourself into the world's thinking, but now you are on mission to win people for Christ. You are not being conformed to the world, but now you are being transformed by the renewing of your thinking, Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, right? So your relationship to the world changes. All of these relationships change, but now there's one more relationship that's changed as well, and it is this. It's your relationship to your sin that has changed as well. You no longer love your sin. Give in to your sin. But now you are humbly contrite and broken over your sin. You say, well, that was at salvation, at conversion, Pastor Campus. Uh-uh. Eh. At conversion, it started 
where you dropped everything. You said, nothing to the cross I bring, only my sin. But that is not to be an ongoing reality, a lifetime of repentance from dead works, yes, and of good works for the glory of God in your ongoing sanctification, that process of becoming more and more like Jesus. We are to cultivate a heart of brokenness and contriteness over our sin. Look at this in verse 2. To this one I will look, he says, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, he says. Contriteness. It's referring to the person who is, who is aware of their sinfulness and their spiritual brokenness and their spiritual poverty because of their sin before God. Once again, it speaks to our, of our utter need for God's daily sustaining grace in the light, brethren, of our sinfulness, because we are keenly aware that we are weak, that we are imperfect and flawed every single day. Amen? Or am I the only sinner in here? Every single day, we're aware of this. Brethren, God delights in the person who is humbly contrite over their sin, who is broken over their sin. Psalm 34, verse 18, assures us of this. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, says the psalmist, and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Brokenhearted and crushed in spirit about what? About our sin. God is pleased and delights in people who grieve and mourn over their sin because then that drives us to the foot of the cross, even as believers, to be reminded of why we need to be dependent upon the Lord every day. Amen? Because we fall so short, brethren, every single day. I know that you can identify with me in that. Psalm 51 and verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And then Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see that? Poverty of spirit is a requirement for salvation. And it is cultivated in our ongoing sanctification as believers, as those who are in Christ, right? You want to know who will inherit the kingdom of God? Who will receive salvation? It's those who look within and to their spiritual bank account and say, I got nothing. I am spiritually bankrupt. I have nothing to offer God except my sin. Father, please, or God, please forgive me. I trust in Christ and in His righteousness. I need an alien righteousness and righteousness outside of myself, an objective righteousness because I cannot earn God's favor on my own whatsoever. He's infinitely majestic. He's infinitely great. I need the alien outside of myself righteousness of Christ. That was Luther's point, wasn't it? We need Jesus. That kind of brokenness, that kind of contriteness. When we come to God with that kind of humility, that's the kind of person God saves by faith in Jesus. What does that wonderful song of old say? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, right? Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. This is the heart of Isaiah. Back in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5, after catching a glimpse of God's glory, Isaiah cries out, Woe is me, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. How did Isaiah get to the point of such humble brokenness, humble contrition? For my eyes have seen the King, he says, the Lord of hosts. That's how. By beholding God. A glimpse only of His glory, by the way. 
And so when we see God clearly, we will walk humbly and contrite over our sin, brethren. God desires and delights in people with hearts of humble contrition with regard to their sin. Mark it. Listen, the person who sees God rightly does not diminish the seriousness of sin or the sin of other people. You say, well, we're called to be gracious. Yes, we're called to be gracious, but that doesn't mean sweep sin under the rug. That doesn't mean ignore sin. Hear me. As believers, we're called to be gracious with regards to the brokenness and the fallenness of others, including ourselves. But grace simply informs and shapes the way that we approach confronting someone in their sin and vice versa. Amen? We recognize Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, that were it not for God's grace, we too would be tempted, right? Each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. So the person who sees God rightly doesn't diminish the seriousness of their sin or the sin of others. You don't downplay sin or treat it lightly. You don't detract from sin by blaming other people, blaming your spouse, blaming your kids, blaming your parents, blaming your coworkers, blaming your boss, blaming everybody, right? That's not a right understanding of the majesty of God and our humility before Him. The person who sees God rightly does not downgrade the consequences of their sin. We often say, well, no one's perfect. We get it. I use that terminology often as well. We get what we're saying, right? We're not, we're not flawless people. There's only one perfect God-man, and His name is Jesus. And none of us measure up to Him perfectly whatsoever. That's why we need Him. We get what we mean by when we say nobody's perfect. But sometimes believers, and we've all done it to some extent or another, we might use terminology like that to excuse, to downgrade, to downplay, to diminish sin. And that's not good. That doesn't glorify God. And so any of these sinful responses, brethren, show that we have both a low view of God's holiness and a lack of humility in our lives. 1 Peter 1.16 calls us to be, to be holy, to be set apart from sin unto God. You shall be holy, for I am holy. That's God speaking to believers. That's to Christians. And the person who is truly saved will want to be holy. That's the difference, isn't it? Before Christ, you and I would give in to our sin. We lived comfortably in our sin. Maybe we were guilt-ridden, but not leading to repentance because of our sin. Now as believers, we are in a fight against our sin, aren't we? By the grace of God, we are fighting against sin. This is the attitude of, of David, by the way, this humble contrition. When he's confessing his sin in Psalm 51, he cries out, Be gracious to me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. I love that because David knows that apart from God's grace and loving kindness and mercy, he's toast. He's toast. He's got no hope. So he appeals to the greatness of who God is. And then he says, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only. I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Did you catch how personal his sin is to David? Did you catch that? What does he say? Multiple times. My sin, my iniquity, my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. I have sinned by implication. I've done what is evil in your sight. Boy, 
not a guy who's like blame shifting, is he? At least at this point when he's confessing this, though he did it before. Don't miss that. Rather than dismissing, downplaying, detracting, or downgrading the seriousness of, our, of sin, David belabors, accentuates, underscores, highlights the intensification and the seriousness of his sin in the light of the majesty of God, right? That's what he's doing. He doesn't downplay it. He doesn't joke about it. Yes, we know that God is gracious, brethren, but what is it that makes God's grace so beautiful and so attractive and different than any other religion or world system or philosophical system in, in this world? I'll tell you what, that God's gracious pre- grace is precious to us because we understand the seriousness of our personal sins and what it took for us to procure or forgot to procure forgiveness and reconciliation for us, right? His son went to the cross, absorbed our sin, took upon himself the fullness of the Father's wrath, the arrow of God's wrath aimed in our direction. Jesus took that arrow on on, on himself. We understand so we don't diminish the seriousness of sin. We're contrite and broken over it even as believers. And yes, we know that we've been forgiven by His grace, but that in no way, shape, or form means that now all of a sudden contrite repentance before God is nowhere to be found in our lives. God's grace is not cheap grace, is it? It's life-transforming grace. Read Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. The same grace that saves is the grace that sanctifies and the grace that sustains us all the way unto the end. That allows us to put off sin, denying ungodliness and worldly desires, and instead living soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus 2, 11 through 14, grace saves, grace sanctifies, grace sustains us all the way unto the end so that we are in the presence of God, standing justified in Christ. Amen? So don't downplay your sin. Don't treat sin as cheap. Now allow grace in the way that you, that you approach it and as you confront others, make sure that you are remind, reminding yourself of Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, that we're not for the grace of God, right? Each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. And thus to walk in humility is to walk in daily contrite repentance before God, brethren. Now what does humble contrite repentance look like in our lives? What does it look like? Well, the English pastor Thomas Watson said that humble repentance involves five primary things. All right, I'm going to give this to you guys really fast. Okay, ready? Extra fast. It involves sight of sin. Humble repentance in the Christian life involves sight of sin. Simply put, do you see your sin? And do you acknowledge it as sin? Not calling it other things. Well, you know, there are all kinds of extenuating circumstances why I do what I do. Uh Uh-uh. Certain sins that you might, might be characteristic in your life might be explained because of past experiences and difficulties and, and susceptibilities that you have. Those things might explain why you struggle with a particular sin or whatever in your life, but it doesn't justify it, right? Christ died for those sins. And so thus, we must see our sin, sight of sin. Second, it involves sorrow for our sin. Humble repentance involves sorrow for our sin. So that when we sin, we will not be simply sad because we got caught or sad because of the consequences that are going to be coming upon us. No, we're going to feel deep sorrow because we've sinned against God. 
Because we've sinned against our Heavenly Father who sent His Son Jesus into the world to die to pay for our sins. You see that? Sight of our sin, sorrow for our sin. Third, it involves confession of our sin. Confession of our sin. Confession means that we agree with God about our sin. Simply put that we we see our sin as God sees it and we define it as God defines it and we see the seriousness of it as God sees it as serious. So much so that he sent Jesus into the world to accomplish redemption. So we talk to God about it, we confess it. He said, Pastor Kempis, I thought that Christians don't need to confess their sins anymore. Uh-uh, think again. Right? 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. If we confess, continually confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Brethren, we don't cease to confess our sins to God because we become a Christian. Instead, it's precisely because you are a Christian, because you are in Jesus, that you confess your sins daily, knowing that the answer to your confession as a believer will always be yes in Christ. Amen? We confess our sins. Sight, sorrow, confession. Four, humble repentance involves shame for our sin. Shame for our sin. Again, not shame because we got caught, because of the consequences, because of what others think about us. No, shame because of the glory of God being dishonored. And though we know that God will forgive us of our sins, we recognize that we need to feel shame for our sin because these are the sins that Christ died for, right? Fifth, humble repentance also involves hatred for our sin. We've talked about this a little bit, but the mark of the true believer is that we no longer condone, dismiss, enjoy, live comfortably in our sin, right? And some of you may be doing that even this morning. You are living in known, conscious, unrepentant sin, not the everyday issues and struggles of life, but you know that there's some sin in secret that you can fool everybody else that you, they don't know about, but God knows your heart. There is no secret before the presence of God, right? So... Are you ashamed? So much so that you come to the foot of the cross and you say, God, forgive me. And you want to bring that to light. Sin grows in isolation. Do you understand that? Sin grows in isolation, beloved. Expose it. Bring it out. Confess it to God and to one or two other people who love you, who are going to help you. That's why community and and us coming together, body life, is crucial. Amen? I hope that all of you sitting in here right now are in a small group. I really do. I wish I could ask for hands, but I'm not going to do that. But I'll tell you, maybe down the line I will. Who knows? Or one of our elders, I'll throw it on them so that they can receive. Maybe I'll throw it on Derek. I hope that every single one of you, to some extent or another, that this isn't all that you're doing as far as body life. This is the main event, and you should be here. Absolutely. Absolutely. But you should be involved and participating. You should be a highly committed participant rather than a passive spectator. Right? There's no such thing as Christianity where we kind of come in and sit down as spectators. Christianity is more like a picnic, isn't it? And everybody in a potluck picnic brings something to contribute to that picnic if we're going to have a good meal, right? Everybody's a highly committed participant. I hope that every single one of you sees the value of participating in a small group. And if some small groups are closed, we're going to open up some more and train more people to get more small groups in our church. So that every single one of you doesn't have any excuse to not be in that. For your good, beloved. For your good. The glory of God. For the good of others. 
other brethren who need to benefit from you being a part of these small groups and glean from you and vice versa. Five, or six rather. Humble, contrite repentance involves turning from sin back to God. Sight, sorrow, confession, shame, hatred, turning from sin back to God. Genuine repentance is shown in a heartfelt commitment to not return to our sin by God's grace, right? And so think about this. Humility shows itself in a deep sense of awareness of our sinfulness so that it drives us to our knees, to the foot of the cross daily. We live in the light of the transforming power of the gospel, right? By the way, recommendation, The Discipline of Grace by Jerry Bridges. If you have never read that, The Discipline of Grace, great book. How believers are called to never leave the gospel, but we live in the light of the transforming power of the gospel and the victory accomplished and procured by Jesus. We live in the light of that victory so that we pursue holiness all the more in the power of the Spirit. Amen? That's what it's all about. Well, we'll look at the last of these next week. But I leave you with Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, which tells us about the type of man or woman whom God looks upon with delight. Listen to Micah 6, 6. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And listen to this. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and here it is, and to walk humbly with your God. My brethren, may God help us to diligently cultivate a heart of humility before Him that we would be fruitful and faithful in the mission that He's given us to accomplish. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, Thank you for your wonderful grace and for reminders like this powerful passage of the fact that it all begins with a right perspective of you and then we see ourselves rightly so that we would be effective and faithful and fruitful in the mission that you've left us to accomplish in this world. Help us to do that by your grace and in your strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.